Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Ogasho Galio Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're aggressively and awkwardly angling our hips at the metal belt and garters of Upstart Sienna Blades, meaning we're discussing Excalibur number 73. Memories are made of this. Excalibur number 73 was originally published in January 1994. We've entered the 1994s, and the creative team is Richard Ashford on writing, Terry Shoemaker on pencils, Randy Elliott on inks, Pat Gary and Chris Matthews. Mathis on colors, Pat Rousseau on letters, and Susan Gaffney on editing. Welcome back to the raddest era of Excalibur Chat, featuring a CD-ROM's worth of valuable energy powers and questionably proportioned bodies plus wraparound shades and people calling other people wimps. But who am I? I am Dr. Anna Papard. I love talking about sexy and gendery superheroes and other sexy stuff in the usual academic places and digital realms like Comics XF and Sequential Scholars, where at the time of this recording, Andrew and I are, I think, talking about comic strips, but we'll probably be talking about Teen Titans when the episode comes out. So look out for that. I also remain Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, and in that capacity, I want to talk about this Ken Lashley cover um, a lot, and I also don't want to talk about it at all, uh, but we will get to that. First, we got to introduce the rest of the upstarts, including Mav. Take it away. Hi, my, my name is Christopher USB Maverick. Um, I, <laughs> <laughs> that? I just noticed when I reread the issue right before the pod. <laughs> Um, but you can call me Mav. Um, do I want to explain that joke or do I just want it to be like a thing that's just left there for people physically reading the comic? But then the problem is then you'd have to physically read this comic and I don't really want to condemn anybody to that, but, (laughs) (laughs) oh God, I have so many thoughts. Um, but yeah, I host this show and another show called Vox Popcast where I talk about cultural issues in pop culture. Um, so I study sex, gender, race, class, identity politics, all those sorts of things and superhero 
superhero comics and TV shows and professional wrestling and, you know, all kinds of pop culture. That's the kind of thing that I do. And I'm just like, I am also kind of perplexed by this cover. Um, we, we talked a little bit about musculature and stuff and the way 90s excess drawing was done last um, issue. All of that's here. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm looking forward to this. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I don't want to get into it until we get um, into it. I just... Are we going to explain my, I don't know if I want to explain my joke. Uh, let's, see what, let's see what Andrew does. <laughs> Welcome back to it at the end if we don't get to it. Uh, yes, Andrew, uh, light the world afire with your credentials. Hello, I'm Dr. J. Andrew, Incompatible Peripheral Demand, a lecturer at St. Jerome's <laughs> University and co-project lead for Sequential Scholars, which just submitted a 38-page grant application. Uh, oh, Anna did the majority oh. of the writing. Well, I did the majority of the administrative stuff. And by God, we put together an amazing project in a just world where comic scholarship is recognized oh, and God. appreciated as it should be. The awarding body would take one look at this thing and say that they were embarrassed by how little money we were asking <laughs> oh for. God. And could we please consider doubling our ask because they know good scholarship when they see it? It's not likely oh, to happen, no. but fingers crossed. <laughs> oh my god I'm, I'm superstitious about stuff like that andrew i have to assume that there's a no chance of us getting it so that i i <laughs> cannot <laughs> think about it for the next four months yeah. well anyway thank you for that i'm very happy the grant is submitted this is just like a day of getting stuff done like so many things i my house got hit by lightning last week and today is the first day that finally the phones and the internet are completely working and I've been trying to replace this recliner for my father for like a month. It took them like a month to replace this recliner that arrived broken and it just got delivered like half an hour ago. I feel like things are looking <laughs> up. Oh, and my dog had a limp for three days and he is better today oh, and I'm really good. happy that I don't have to go to the vet. I did ask Andrew for advice about that. I was like, you've got a dog. Am I a bad dog owner if I don't take a limping <laughs> dog to the vet? But no, he is better today so i'm happy about that so things are just all coming at me today and i'm looking forward to discussing this comic book with our very fine guest who i better get around to introducing so our totally 90s crew is joined this week by an always fabulous returning guest to the pod is delighted to welcome back dr charlotte fabricius welcome charlotte thank you so much and i will give our listeners another bio of you you haven't joined us for oh, you pointed out right before the pod that you were here a year ago, and that just destroyed me mentally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll remind our listeners of what you get up to. So Dr. Charlotte Johan Fabricius is a postdoc with the Project Feminized, a new literary history of women's work situated at the University of Southern Denmark. She studies women and non-binary creators of diary comics on Instagram as a form of feminized creative labor. But she hasn't forgotten her past as a scholar of superheroes and gender. She got her PhD in 2021 with a dissertation in contemporary supergirls which she is currently reworking for publication she writes about comics in english for academic venues and in danish or more popular ones and she occasionally joins podcasts to nerd out about superheroes which we will do today so charlotte we already did your comics origin story back when you joined us for excalibur 32 the first part of girls school from heck but let's catch up a little bit what have you been up to have you have you continued reading excalibur is also a very important question i'm, I'm curious about your response to going from issue 32 to the issue we have before us today. Yeah, and I, I've i got to say that I've not actually been reading along. I have, however, been listening along to this podcast. <laughs> um, I am... Are, are mandatory, don't worry. 
<laughs> yeah, because of how how podcasting time works, I'm I'm still I believe two issues behind. I think the last published episode was on Excalibur number seventy. So naturally, I am uh, confused about some things. But but I feel like in a sort of tangential way, I know what this comic series is about, despite having read now only two actual <laughs> issues of it. <laughs> well, how does it how does it feel like? I mean. I know it's hard to sort of get an impression, you know, from just 32 in this issue, but does it feel like things have changed? Does this feel like a continuation of things that we were talking about before? Or do you feel that you've been dropped into a new era here? It definitely feels a little different. And and weirdly, it mostly does that because it feels a little more familiar to me um, because I am slightly more familiar with for better or for worse, 90s superhero comics than I was with with some of the slightly earlier stuff. It's not a familiarity that is altogether pleasant to me, but there was a more of like, oh yes, this thing, than I had reading <laughs> Girls' School from Heck. Well, I was going to ask you about your work on 90s comics, but maybe let's do it now and then we'll get into the issue like a little bit more specifically, because what I've been wanting to do in the past, well, episode we just did, and then the one after this as well, we're kind of asking people who've done some work on 90s comics and excess and all of these things to walk us through their theories of it, because it's a a pet topic of mine, and I know of of Andrew and Mav as well. So so you have a wonderful article about Nightwing called Precarious Lines, Heroism and Hyper-Capability in 90s Nightwing Comics. And um, I was wondering if you could walk us through that a little bit. Like, what interested you about studying that period? And yeah, how might it relate to some of the ways we might process what we've got going on here in terms of that 90s context? Yeah, so I will I will try to keep this story as short as possible. Back when I started getting into superhero comics, which um, I, I will remind listeners who didn't listen to my, my first appearance here or may have forgotten, uh, wasn't until I was in my early 20s and was in university doing my bachelor's degree at the time in comparative lit and some gender studies thrown in there, and started reading superhero comics very sporadically and very weirdly and for whatever (laughs) reason I think my boyfriend at the time started reading the 90s Chuck Dixon Nightwing series oh yeah yeah and sort of with the main takeaway of this is absolutely bonkers but I think you'll like it and I did in a very weird way was was very fascinated and part of it is is my deep and undying love for Dick Grayson but part of it was also just like what is going on in this thing to the point when a couple of years later I was uh, deciding what to write my master's thesis on landed on wanting to study non-normative embodiment in superhero comics and somehow ended up choosing Gail Simone's run on Batgirl and Chuck Dixon's run on Nightwing as my case studies and once I dug into to it could really let go so when I got the opportunity a couple of years later to publish some stuff on heroism I had this this thing on on Nightwing lying around that then got turned into this article which in in very short sort of looks at how masculinity is managed within this series how it's linked to capability and even a sort of extreme hyper capability that is sort of constantly having to be managed and normalized and how that that sort of shoring up of the potential excess of Nightwing is done through making his villains even more excessive and monstrous in ways that are often really ableist and classist and very complicated, but do very, very interesting things with these, like, frankly, ridiculous depictions of bodies in general and 
masculine bodies in particular. What's your kind of take on why this was going on during this era? Like, do you think it's related to things in the culture? Was this just a movement in art? You know, like, what's your take on the nature of excess during this period? Yeah, well, look, all of the smartest points about excess in this period in my article are citing your work, Anna. So I think we're very much (laughs) on the same page with regards to this. It's sort of looking at what was going on in body cultures of the time and the sort of visualizing of a a particular sort of masculine body that works out, that is very fit, that is sort of imagined to be perfectible in, in ways that are sort of very closely aligned with patriarchal norms. And at the same time, this sort of like reveling in what happens when you take that that idea and that that vision of the body and just push it to its absolute limits and beyond mm-hmm. that yeah. there's sort of a an excess that wants out and that sort of becomes unruly when it's the most interesting oh yeah you're speaking my language oh, okay <laughs> well i really want to talk about this cover in reference to a bunch of that stuff because <laughs> Just a prime case study for for why some of these excessive gestures are both interesting and monstrous. So uh, let's do an issue summary and then we'll we'll come right back to that. <laughs> so I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We join you rummaging through the CD section of the mall on Rodeo Drive any day. But work comes before play and in the spirit of that, let's start today's assault with an issue summary. Excalibur 73 opens where Excalibur 72 left off, with Kitty and Kurt materializing after a teleport into solid rock deep inside. Muir Island. Outside, the winds are howling and the sea is churning as Sienna blazes. Recent attacks are causing a disruption in the climate around the island. A man clings to life as he swims for shore. Kitty manages to face Kurt out of the rock, but he's in shock. As she tries to revive him, Sienna blaze makes landfall. Meanwhile, high above the earth, Rachel surveys the damage that Sienna's attack has caused to the ozone layer. She tries to use her phoenix powers to fix it, but her attempt to be a one-woman environment club overtaxes her and she falls to earth unconscious. Visions reach her of Captain Britain and Cable she calls out to Ascani's son to help her. Later, she wakes and wonders if she's still dreaming when she starts to transform into Brian. With effort, she quells the transformation and heads back to Muir Island. Back inside, Sienna confronts Moira, Kitty, and Kurt. Kurt, now revived, distracts Sienna with his disco moves as Kitty grabs Moira and phases her to safety. Sienna throws a tantrum and nearly blows up the whole complex with a huge energy blast. Sienna eventually finds her prize, the CD-ROM containing Proteus's DNA. But Kitty and Kurt use a combo of teleporting and phasing to once again thwart her plans. Then Rachel shows up to deliver the winning blow, not quite vanquishing Sienna, but making her scurry back to the Game Master. That crisis dealt with, the team rushes outside to try and help the man, Rory Campbell, who swam to shore. He later awakens on an examination table to the sigh and delight of one Rachel Summers, who both doesn't recognize him and is suddenly straight. While everyone's mm-hmm. getting to know Rory, Kitty heads <laughs> to another room in the complex to check on Megan via a hololink. She's enthusiastic to see Megan up and about, but when her old teammate turns to face her, Megan's got a lot more teeth than usual and not just because it's the 90s so charlotte we we got into a few first impressions already but oh we'll we'll, we'll do it again here just general first impressions of this issue i've already said about 10 times we're going to talk about the cover we will definitely do that but other first impressions you want to share off the bat yeah i mean i I feel some kind of way about being considered an authority to to speak on this (laughs) um when you guys uh, very graciously reached out and asked whether I would be interested to come on and speak about this issue uh, in particular, I sort of opened the the cover image on my phone and shoved it at my partner going, look, they want me back to talk about this thing. And he just goes, <laughs> what? Um, and then paused for a brief second and went, yeah, that seems, yeah. So 
<laughs> that's, I guess, sort of secondhand first impressions. I guess my other main first impression, which I don't know that it that it surprised me per se, but it, but can be summarized as that's not how bodies work. Yeah. <laughs> in any of these pages, really. And yeah. Like, yeah. Go there's a lot of interesting things to talk about there, which I I imagine we will about the sort of anxieties and and excitements about bodies and excess and and gender and power and and all of these things. And also, there's something here about all of this like environmental stuff. Yes. And. <laughs> Maybe this is me just doing a very presentist reading of it, but I uh, there might be something gendered going on here with with sort of environmental disruption that I that I may make us get back to if we ever finish talking about this cover because oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, the environmentalism stuff stood out to me too. I, I mean, we could talk about it more. It did personally just strike me as kind of a thing from the era. I mean, I was a kid during this era, and just like environmentalism was like a big deal. And you saw that in some previous issues that we looked at too, the one about nuclear power. But I'm very happy mm. to talk about the gender implications as well. So we will come back to that. Um, Andrew, your first impressions of this one? I don't, I don't know. Like this is a baffling issue for me it just (laughs) like it's trying to do so much and there's stuff in there that i like that it's trying to do like i kind of like the pace i think there's a there's a natural Mm. comparison to the battle of muir island that claremont wrote Mm -hmm. where the um um, reavers attack Uh, and and that was a really good story for me i really enjoyed that one this one i don't know if it was working i I think for me one of the big problems is actually sienna blaze as a credible villain like I, I like the scale of her power. I think you could do really cool things with that. Um, but she's just a little too like quippy, maybe, and hard to take seriously because she's ineffective or something. Something about her was not working for me the way that it, it did work in whatever it was. Um, her first appearance, X Men Unlimited number one, I believe, where I did kind of like that character. So, so for me, there's something missing here. But I, I like some of the things that Ashford is going for. Um, and I think that that '90s excess that we've already been talking about is well suited to that kind of pace that he's trying to establish it just feels a little raw to me like it's not quite coming together i i confess that i did read all of sienna blaze's dialogue in like a 90s cartoon voice i'm not sure which voice but i have it in my head like exactly what type of voice it is um you know basically (laughs) think about a number of the voices on x-men animated series and you're in the ballpark of what i was thinking of just some of that dialogue about you know wimps and you know making ironic statements about pop culture that seem out of date Just anyway. Um, yeah, definitely agreed. Uh, Mav, first impressions. Um, you know how sometimes you take your Barbie dolls who lack genitalia, but you just shove it in each other's faces? <laughs> that was my first impression because this cover, <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. just like, look at my crotch right here. Haha. <laughs> uh-huh. Here is where my penis should be, <laughs> but, but isn't. And it's not like a gender bent thing. It's not it's not like a, you know, there's a way that uh, you draw the crotch area of a female character versus a male character in the 90s comic book mystique. This is neither. This is a Ken doll. And it seems like that's the model for it. But also like so many muscles, like, you know how your abs start right under the pecs and just go all the way down to your butt. Like, like so much of this is just <laughs> like, like questions that I just have. And 
and that's like where like I remember this and I'm like, oh, wow, that's um, that's a lot because I talked about last episode about how I don't necessarily love the 90s aesthetic, the bad girl aesthetic, the excess aesthetic that I always call it the image style of art. But I appreciate it as something that the people who were doing it well, I used um, life out last time, but I also say Lee, I will say I'll, just to have somebody a little different Tushi. For, um, uh, like there are lots of people who who have this aesthetic and they know what they're doing and and Terry Shoemaker is not that person. It doesn't mm. work. And and like I was aware of it at the time, so that's my first impression. I was like, "What are you? Why why have you done this? This does not look right, and it, it does not look like what I think you want it to look like either." So it, it feels like you know, if I wanted to be reading Young Blood, I would be reading Young Blood. Stop trying to make me read Young Blood, and if you're going to try to make me read Young Blood do it well you're not doing it as good as they did and and i could not get away from i also have major issues with sienna when we get to her but like that's but like my first impression was just this cover is a lot and then the cover i believe who's who's the cover did ash who wrote the who it's, drew the it's cover? lash it's lashley on the cover and then shoemaker it's on lashley, interiors because shoemaker yeah. draws the book and so i guess it's lashley on the cover and they don't match up neither of them are doing what they think they're doing well yeah yeah i mean we keep sort of running into that kind of complaint about some of this stuff but okay let's talk about this cover so i went on a little bit of a <laughs> i rhapsodized a little bit in our last episode about the excess of the 90s in terms of sort of the sexual vibes of it and how that's just kind of it permeates 90s art like eroticism permeates 90s art but often in a very unfocused way like it's not that things are pornographic in a traditional sense people aren't just having sex on panel suddenly but the excess be leads to yeah but maybe that would be better but like the excess leads to this sexualized atmosphere that is sort of directionless a lot of the time it's just again it's just vibes it's just like an atmosphere of excess mm -hmm. and like this image like okay so i just <laughs> like the crotch thing what it specifically looks like to me and when i tweeted it out a number of people pointed this out it looks not just that he's a ken doll but that he has like a nutsack minus a penis but yep. also yes. that it's in the place of where his lower abs should be and yes. it is very very baffling <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and like look just, where his belly button is yeah i know it's... i know <laughs> it just <sighs> but it's a crush like i just when i think about how to analyze an image like that i'm of two minds about it partly i'm like there's no point because i do not think this is some sort of deep freudian thing i do not think that there's intent to the extent that there's not an intent to subvert something there's not an intent to like i don't know like represent some sort of deviant sexuality or something that's not the intent here there's a sexualized intent clearly with the positioning of the tail like we have it coming straight mm -hmm. down from between his legs which dave cockrum mm -hmm. told you never to do that was on his original style sheet because it'll look like a penis so when that happens that is the intent at least of that gesture and then of course we have the tail the tip of the tail you know pointing right between sienna's breasts but at the same time this presence and absence of genitalia is just baffling right and like what do you do with that i mean i'll put it to everybody you know what do you do with that what do you do with that presence and absence do you find it a productive quality of an image like this or is it just baffling and not worth talking about charlotte that question's coming to you yeah so it definitely is baffling what i keep focusing on is actually the trajectory of kurt's tale 
that sort of makes this elliptical shape that that kind of makes your eye loop because then it connects with Sienna's body and sort of loops back around. So there's this this ellipsis inscribed sort of in the center of this cover and the center of this image that that has this sort of weird non-crotch right at the middle of it. And and the sort of the way of making us stare at that particular configuration of these particular <laughs> bodies that are both sort of weird that it's like yes on the one hand Kurt is very sort of masculinized and very traditional in that sense and at the same time is like super monstrous and mm-hmm. you know with the with the way that his face is rendered here with the the sort of pebbly weird that's not how muscles under skin works <laughs> of like the side mm-hmm. of his torso also the the position of his foot going towards Sienna's crotch is in a sort of grabby motion oh god that foot which is it's very sort of weird, but also very suggestive of a very sort of aggressive type of sexuality that's not about sex, but is about violence. And at the same time, at least from how I see it, this cover depiction of Sienna is the most sort of traditionally feminine or feminized that she's drawn. Mm-hmm. That I we we can get back to talking about this, but I, I find it really interesting the way that, that her body is drawn throughout the the issue, the way that Shoemaker draws her, that it's sort of more more masculinized at times and there's something about the sort of triangular shape of the shoulder section of her costume and how that's meant to like what it most looks like is is Kurt's costume and and the ways that they get mirrored and some of the like gender policing that goes on between the two of them that she sort of more straightforwardly look here's the the wicked damsel on the cover and at the same time is like encircled into this weird loop of of genitalia at the same time that she's like leaning backwards and forwards at the same time in that weird broke back pose that mm. just like I can't actually tell due to the coloring whether this is technically a broke back but it's very close yeah if it's not actually and and I and I got to the point where I was like I do not want to spend more time trying to pass out whether I'm seeing one or two buttocks on on this person <laughs> <laughs> So maybe that can get us started is that I think the line work is at least trying to to sort of capitalize on the like major look effect of the cover. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I've talked about when I've talked about 90s excess uh, in a piece I did about Marvel swimsuit was talking about uh, Joe Quesada's pinup of Namor from the Marvel swimsuit special mm. and the way the amount of veins and lines on every piece of flesh kind of turns every part of the body into a substitute penis mm. <laughs> while still not showing penises and that sort of gets at that diffuse eroticism right which again I think uh, I think the diffuseness of that <sighs> has a productive monstrousness if we're being generous but again it's not that people were doing that on purpose necessarily it's more just like an explosion of that eroticized id you know coming out in some of this artwork but um but mav i'll I'll give you go ahead Mav. oh i think people were doing it on purpose um and that's or at Mm. least i think some people well yeah like i want to i want to be careful about what i mean by like on purpose like i do think it's on purpose like i think the eroticization of the image is on is on purpose but it's just that the things that are exaggerated is not like we're not just seeing huge dicks we're like seeing like arms become dicks instead of so, dicks being dicks. so again i I, I, I think it, I, yeah, yeah i think it depends on the person right like so i don't i cannot 
know these particular artists. However, 1994 is also the year that one of my, and I've never mentioned this on the show before, I don't think, because it's because we haven't been here yet. One of my favorite comic book start, series starts around now. It is Penthouse Comics. Penthouse Comics is some of, at least early on, is some of the most inventive and interesting things that people are trying to do with comics and sexuality in the 1990s, which is interesting because it happens. So Penthouse, as in Penthouse Magazine, the porn magazine, they start their own comic book label. And they're doing this under the era that is also this, you know, 90s image explosion. So there are some artists who are working there and they are very much doing this sort of thing in clearly pornographic work to where they make um they make the the illusions um obvious and intentional and it was popular enough that like retroactively people would have known right like like they would not they would not have been able to escape knowing so i think that sets a lot of context for this it becomes weird because Pinhouse is a is a anthology series so some of it is much better than others and this ends up being like a, a thing where as i said the downfall becomes when people when it just becomes about the style with no substance whatsoever. If they if you are doing things where you're like, I am intentionally drawing an allusion to sex and I am trying to make this interesting and sexualized and, you know, as a statement, the way, say, Alan Davis has done for the entire series run that he did, where it's like, look, I'm just going to straight up put them in bondage stuff. This is my fantasy. Maybe you're into it. Maybe you're not. Right. That's fine. Or in Art Adams, like in in um in we, we've talked about this a lot. Andrew and I, if you go to Asgardian Wars, where Claremont and Adams clearly have a thing for, you know, hands, bondage, and and mm -hmm. Ileana, right? Like, those are choices that I think become interesting, whether you are skeeved out by them or not. I think they're at least an interesting conversation. It's weird when they feel accidental, and a lot of this feels accidental. So on this cover, Sienna's leg is like you talked about her butt being maybe broke back or maybe not. I don't think it is, but her her back leg that we don't see is just entirely in the wrong place in a way that it can't connect to her body at all. And it's oh, yeah. not <laughs> extended. It's not extended in an expressive the way uh, an Art Adams or Jim Lee or Rob Liefeld would do it, even if you don't like that style. It's just they drew the leg in the wrong place. It's not like broke back on purpose. It's just that they drew the leg in the wrong place. And that weirds me out like why is her hip down there and, and i don't know how to deal with that because those inconsistencies pervade this entire book i uh a number of things there i didn't know we were going to talk about penthouse comics so i was like i have a lot of thoughts about that yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh come up again for the next year yeah <laughs> slightly different take on on the goodness of penthouse comics in my corner um interesting context for that i one of the early issues of penthouse comics was banned in comedy in canada rather for its depiction of rape yes, um, it was eight. actually in a yeah in a comic drawn by milo manara i believe and mm -hmm. the scene in question involves a couple raping a woman with a broken beer bottle yes. um, so in terms of sort of the uh posit sex positivity of that series i would think oh it varies uh, yeah, varies yeah, I should, I should it is, a, it is an anthology series. I should I should make that yeah. clear. Um, a lot of penthouse comics is actually also very bad. I think it's interesting in that yeah, it I do existed too. at this cultural moment. Yeah, I do too, and especially because you have some of the creators who are like big name creators doing things in something like Marvel swimsuit, which you know is 
you know, <laughs> sexy, but PG, mm-hmm. like Adam Hughes was doing work in both Penthouse Comics and something like yes. Marvel Swimsuit and obviously doing work for mainstream publishers as well. Rick so Mays I think, as well. uh, yeah, so those intersections stuff. are really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, sometimes it can be interesting when it goes to that place. But I mean, the other thing that really stands out to me from my time reading Penthouse Comics, I was thinking of writing something about it ages ago, but it, I, I ended up not writing it because I found it too depressing. Um, <laughs> but because uh, one of the things, fair. one of the things that really it really gets into what uh, I don't remember the the name of the editor of that series um, who uh, uh, actually uh, committed Kirkland. yeah who actually committed suicide I believe as well during during the run of the series so it's just like a, a lot of darkness uh, mm-hmm. wrapped up in Fantas comics but um, a lot of the editorials in the comic went to a very uh, conservative culture wars place. But like in a weird way where it's like libertarian, I guess, because it's like we publish everything, blah, blah, blah. But uh, it went to a very anti-feminist place uh, real quick. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> and, and, and the flaw there is they're trying to do this, but mm-hmm. it's all under the auspices of it's being done by Penthouse, right? Like yeah. <laughs> like this might have been something else if it could have been if it were published at an image or I mean, certainly it wouldn't have been published at a Marvel in this era. But if, but if it could have been a dark horse or an image or someone with with a wider not just wider readership but someone who could be more experimental the way that we do things today with something like vertigo or black label in dc right like you could do interesting things they didn't because it was being published by penthouse and its first job was to be stroke material like that was the purpose right so it becomes weird and i think the reason i brought it up is because i think that this comic is trying to figure out where it lives in that world right this comic is is going i want to be this sexy thing i guess and and there's no other direction beyond that yeah no totally i agree with that and i mean it just it just again getting back to this cover specifically what strikes me about it though and like the difference between something that would be explicit porn versus something that's porny but not porn which is how i would describe this cover is just that it reminds me of a lot of those excesses of men's bodies in the 90s where so we had this switch over which charlotte was referring to before between between what we sometimes refer to as the classical bodybuilder versus the post-classical bodybuilder. And the post-classical body was very much defined by excess and sort of a rejection of symmetry. It had a lot to do with steroids, obviously. But there was this idea that you were sort of reclaiming your body by actually making your body inaccessible to women and inaccessible to female gazes because it was monstrous in a way that actually doesn't match you know mainstream idealizations of male beauty and when I look at an image like this cover I see a little bit of that going on well a lot of that going on where this man is excessive there's a sexuality to his body but it's not a touchable sexuality it's a sexuality that's violence right which again Charlotte mentioned as well and in that context yeah it just does make me think about penthouse comics again and the way again it was an anthology series so i don't want to paint everybody with the same brush like there were some stories that were a little bit more uh whatever (laughs) a little bit less i would say problematic and a little bit more problematic it's a a spectrum Mm -hmm. um but but yeah like just i don't know thinking about the sort of impact of of the 80s revolution in comics too where you had this increase in sexual content and quote-unquote sexual maturity but just so often that takes the form of having more sexual violence in comics and it kind of disappoints me with an image like this the way it's sexy but sexy in a violent way that is sort of at the expense of women rather than including them and just yeah i'm getting to a depressing place with it now because of the penthouse comics thing i'm sorry 
right. I, I do. I see what I see where you're going with it, and and I I think it's earned because the reason I brought up that criticism is I think that's my problem with this cover, right? Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you want to go to the entire Freudian reading reading of it, the tale which Charlotte brought up is not just it's not just spiraling around in sort of a you know a perfect um golden spiral around the book it, you know it's drawing your attention around the book and then directly penetrating right into her boobs right like mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. i mean kurt's tail is an arrow that's just how he's designed so if you're going to follow the natural eye line that this artwork yeah, makes you do the vectors it, yeah it it the eye line starts at his face goes through his lack of penis around his knee and then you know stabs right into her boobs i can't not do that and so yeah that is a violent sexual image because that's just the only way this art at least on this cover which is our first impression we're still in first impressions it's the only way we're allowed to see this like no, there's yeah. no background there's nothing else like you would be forgiven if you looked at this cover and it took you weeks to realize that Kitty and Moira are, are even on it. Because we've not mentioned them so far. But yeah, they're also on this cover and you'd not notice. Anyway, Andrew, we didn't get give you a chance yet to do thoughts on this cover because we went on that digression. But no, yeah, I was, if, if you have thoughts I was on this cover, I'm very much enjoying the dialogue. Ahead. No, I think all I would want to do is, is maybe call on Charlotte a little bit in this, given her expertise and, yeah. and, and maybe you and Matt as well. One of the things that I find really interesting about the 90s style for women, given all the stuff that we talked about, about visual vulnerability, is the way that the 90s women's costumes that we see very much displayed on Sienna Blaze are armored. And like mm-hmm. the way those pieces are in play here, you could argue that it's sort of armor in a fetishy kind of way because it's not covering the main sexual organs. They're still tights, which are, we know are kind of allegorical of nudity. But the thing that I really like about Sienna Blaze in this capacity is the fact that her eyes are covered uh, and the way that that signals um, sort of a displacement from the conventional aesthetic. I, I just wanted to know what other people might think about that in terms of how we've been discussing this cover so far and how we've been discussing Sienna Blaze as a credible or not credible villain in this comic. Yeah, I mean, I'll come to you with it, Charlotte, because we can definitely start talking about the interiors too, because I know you had thoughts about how she's rendered differently on the interiors. So yeah, if you had thoughts about her visual depiction on the cover or the interior, go for it. Yeah, I'm. It, it's sort of, I don't think I've, I've quite finished thinking about it and it's one of the things that I've that I've really looked forward to discussing because I found it really like from looking at the cover initially I I had an expectation of someone you know okay this is going to be a very hypersexualized villain we're going to get a lot of sort of gratuitous body shots and it's not that we don't but they're way different to what I was actually expecting a lot of the sort of posing that I was expecting Sienna to get is sort of given more to to Kitty and Rachel and even to Moira and I think you're dead on Andrew with with the sort of the impenetrability of the way that that Sienna's look is designed right and the sort of the the armoredness of her costume gets even more obvious throughout the the interior artwork as well and I don't think that I necessarily will go so far to say that she is masculinized although there there are some some vibes of that I think again with the like the triangular shoulder piece that at least to me looked like it was meant to to sort of give off a similar shape to what Kurt has going on and yeah. the way that, this that point, right yeah, but but in a way where where Kitty has like the long flowing hair that mm-hmm. and instead we get this sort of mushroom haircut on on Sienna. <laughs> the other thing is that that sort of piece that covers her eyes also goes down across the sort of back of her jaw and 
part of her cheeks and wraps around the back of her neck. And the way that that frames her face, I also think has some really interesting implications in sort of what she looks like. And again, it's not that, that she is sort of masculinized in any simple sense of the term, but that, that there is a there's a complete lack of softness to the way that she's drawn. And and again, that's that's very typical of, of how women are drawn in this era in these sort of hard bodies, but like there's there's no softness with Sienna, which there is with the female characters that, that we're meant to be sympathetic to. You know what mm-hmm. it really reminds me of? Because we have a real change in how Sienna looks drawn by Shoemaker here versus Lashley in the last issue, I would argue. And the way she's drawn here reminds me of, you know, <laughs> Rogue in her like few explicitly villainous early appearances where, again, I, I know your caution about saying the word masculinized Charlotte, and I'm going to do the same thing here. I'm putting it very much in air quotes. Um, Like Rogue was sort of more masculinized in her early villain appearances. And when we see her converted into a more heroic character, she gets a very femme very glam kind of makeover right and it reminds me a lot of that you know the way that gender deviance is often coded with villains and i i saw a little bit of that here as well yeah her first appearance in x-men unlimited as well she has a much more it, it looks more like armor it doesn't look like tights particularly on her legs mm-hmm. yeah that's interesting i mean yeah i have a lot of understandably mixed feelings about <laughs> the women of the 90s and superhero comics but if i'm being generous it is interesting the way they combine that that impenetrability with you know sexual vulnerability through the ways that their bodies are exaggerated because they often embody this duality where they're incredibly armored and like incredibly powerful mm-hmm. compared to compared to female characters from earlier eras and yet the intense exaggeration of their bodies the like objectification on steroids you know, it, it reminds me of what you were talking about in your Nightwing piece, Charlotte, that, you know, superhero comics are like a medium of relativity, you know, like heroes relate to villains, you know, good relates to bad, everything is these conflicts. And so often a thing happens where like the more powerful female characters get, the more sexualized they become mm. to kind of negotiate that duality. And I see a lot of that with female characters in the 90s. And I definitely see a little bit of that with, well, all the women in this book, but a character like Sienna for sure. Yeah, definitely. And I think that what the sort of, what that piece on Nightwing really revolves around is this idea that that whatever is threatening in Nightwing, right? The fact that he has this this super capable body but but is very anxious about losing his capability. It's like half of that series is him waxing poetic about like, oh, what would happen if I lost the ability to fly through the air and do all these things and da 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 da. Um he's like incredibly anxious about it. And like to be fair, I think it's the very first issue that his like several feet long ponytail gets chopped off with a sword and then we're sort of <laughs> that's the start of the series. Um you see why I had to write about this thing um (laughs) but but the sort of that that when these moments of of uncertainty or potential sort of disruption of norms get introduced in him in our hero they then introduce villains who do that thing more and more excessively and more deviantly and more villainously like it's difficult for me to make the same sort of sweeping scale of argument about this one issue, but I think that there's an interesting way of backtracking from Sienna to our female characters and sort of taking her as a 
a sort of hint of what are the anxieties that we have about how powerful Kitty and Rachel in particular are. And how is Sienna sort of figured as as the extreme of that and the sort of the uncomfortable place that that could go were they not kept in check? And that to me is one of the most fascinating dynamics of this sort of excessive style and how it gets combined with these narratives about who is good, who is just, who um, sort of uses their power and wields their power in ways that that we find acceptable. Yeah, I mean, that's often a dynamic with female superheroes that, you know, they're comparing one way of being female and strong versus another way of being female and strong. And, you know, what does that look like in a heroic capacity versus a villainous capacity? And I do find the contrast between Rachel and Sienna here particularly interesting. And it is interesting that they're the two characters that specifically square off physically at the end, right? If you're if you're going to take that you know that argument that it's just you know the monstrousness of the characters i mean we're we're saying you don't want to say masculinize sienna because mostly they just i mean they gave her a short haircut right like that's the as far as <laughs> that is her <laughs> like, and as i pointed <laughs> out is, in the last episode i've had this exact same haircut <laughs> yeah well i believe you actually had that hair when i met you originally like it, it would have been around that time but yeah um, it's possible but that said it's just this is a era when andrew you mentioned very briefly i think last episode that one of harris's things was he he wanted to bob harris the editor at this point wants to get away from this heady mindset that he felt like they'd become like we don't need metaphors we don't need deep insightful stories people are here for the action and because of the image revolution you know there is a there is a focus on visuals on spectacle of violence in comics across the board so in order to make that happen you sort of embrace visual storytelling we don't have a backstory for sienna the i mentioned briefly last episode too that like i don't i don't like the upstarts because i think it's an interesting idea but it's just an idea their plan makes no sense nothing about the Mm -hmm. upstarts makes any sense they are just mutants who fight like the x-men and the reason they're opposed to the x-men is that one team is good and one team is evil what does that mean it means one team is good and one team is evil there's no actual there i mean they they don't want anything and they don't really do anything like they they're playing a game where they're where winning is killing the most x-men except that none of them ever actually get to killing the x-men because <laughs> we need to we, we need the books to go right like they're like like there's this point in this book where kitty is like oh my god it's the upstarts and Moira's was like yeah they almost killed charles and storm and um and cyclops and it's almost because they didn't like there's no like they never actually succeed so they're just generic villains and sienna needs in order to be that she needs to be excessive in a way that the heroes can't be and that's that is um i think defined by i'm gonna call it generically ugliness but like i don't mean necessarily lack of visual appeal just like non-normativity so maybe you're Maybe you've got short hair as a woman. Maybe your forearm with extra arms in the Mutant Liberation Front, right? Like it's just it's some kind of mon- <laughs> it's some kind of monstrousness or otherness that just can mark you as not the genetic superhero ideal, 
but still just as powerful in order to like be these ultimately kind of vacant stories. Mm. Well, let's get into some of the attempted depth of this issue by talking a little bit more about Rachel. Like in a lot of ways, Rachel is the star of this particular comic. She, you know, mm -hmm. gets to do most of the big hero stuff here. And we didn't really get to talk to Charlotte about Rachel too much in our last episode because we were talking mostly about kitty we were talking about girl school from heck and you brought up some rachel thoughts already charlotte but i'd love to come back to you on it in terms of your read of this character in this space so yeah i'll leave it open-ended for you did you find the depiction of rachel interesting here in any ways i did find it really interesting and thus so much more disappointing when she just kind of goes vacant at the mm. end mm. Mm. Because it's sort of like, yes, you know, coo over the pretty much naked male body if you must. But like that that whole like final image of her face sort of half in shadow. I was just like, no, I'm where where did the, the power cosmic go? Like you had a full double page spread of like sending yellow goo everywhere and no i don't i don't understand <laughs> oh, where Charlotte, this came we, from we, we have to tell you about Very rory funny. too um <laughs> so this is the younger version of the man who will later enslave and brainwash her in the dystopian future and rachel does oh, not no. know that <laughs> yeah no. and, she and she doesn't know that because she's stupid because she, oh, he's no. incredibly stupid <laughs> Yeah. He's very, very obviously the same character. Uh -huh. uh, oh, yeah. It's so painfully like uh -huh. it's not really a mystery because people they they paint this thing for oh there's something familiar about him I don't know what it is he's Ahab look at him oh. he's clearly Ahab stop yeah. <laughs> it's not, it's so oh, it's such a bad thing. it's sorry gross. it it just adds uh, another level of of grossness to the things you're already yeah. pointing out so I just thought mm -hmm. I would add that to to the melange yeah no anyway, it's please, uh, please yeah continue. thanks I hate it um <laughs> 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 because I think there are some interesting things and and maybe this is where I'll I'll force us to talk about the sort of environmental go for it themes going on which like i i agree with you guys it's thrown in there because that was sort of a a, a topical thing to do i guess I'm, I'm saying this retroactively i was barely two when this comic came out <laughs> oh um, god i'm so old <laughs> <laughs> no no i am very young um <laughs> but i think and it sort of it first occurred to me when i was looking at how the the north sea is colored in that scene where Ahab is, is coming out of the ocean and that it, it sort of comes right after the the sort of like Rachel in space scenes and the way that they use these sort of color gradients linking the two together and the sort of cosmic and, and the sea as these like wild spaces facilitating something and that both of them are violated by Sienna's attack. That Like there's the hole in the ozone layer and there are earthquakes going on and, and this sort of idea that this is affecting Rachel as well and her sort of ties to this and I mean the the trope of nature the environment what have you being being tied to the feminine is obviously ancient and goes across multiple cultures but I think the way it's invoked here plays into these sort of ideas of vulnerability that sort of has to come along with these extremely powerful women because Rachel is at least it seems to me extremely powerful in this comic and 
and the way that her her vulnerability and her power alike are sort of rendered cosmic and rendered really really expansive had some really interesting potentials to me which again made it then so disappointing when it just ends up with her being reduced completely to someone just idealizing her abuser yeah he is very cute yeah. <laughs> is he though <laughs> no, yeah. but that's the, that's the rationalization he's so cute like and that's all you'll ever get by the way so yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> the power and she's powerful on a level so one of the things that really stands out to me in this book is this is the point where she's using the phoenix force to i guess grab and burn sienna it's not really clear but she says using the phoenix force to enhance my telekinetic powers i should be able to connect part of her mind to the pain she causes what now I, I don't know what any of that means. Yeah. I, it's just a bunch of words thrown together to say she's a god. And like, that's, oh, uh, I, I mean, I guess this book has a lot of words. This is, oh, yeah. This is yeah. Like, there are, it is, it is very heavily narrated. It is, people are very talky. And that, that part just epitomizes it for me because I'm like, I don't know what she's talking about because I've read a Rachel comic ever. Like, and like, that's not a thing that she's ever said. So I don't know what she even did there. Oh, yeah. Like, the vagueness of powers just, I didn't spend any time thinking about it because I don't understand what Sienna's powers are. She just has. She makes like... penises on her. <laughs> <laughs> like, that look at in, in my. PDF yeah. version, which is a little bit screwed up. I think it's about page ten. She mm -hmm. makes a giant purple penis. <laughs> well, she should have given one to Nightcrawler on the cover. <laughs> yeah, well, that's maybe all of the like cross hatching in the background of the purple are a million tiny penises coming out of where her hand and her butt are. I don't know. I made this weird. <laughs> <laughs> the cover made it weird. Let's be real. <laughs> yeah. And there is a sort of purple shadow penis under Kurt on the first opening splash. I'm surprised we haven't talked about that yet. Oh my goodness. Well, there's, yeah, I mean, I'm looking at that right now and you are so right. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, but yeah, with the, with the, with the Rachel stuff and the power stuff, I was just like, but Sienna has like energy powers, but her energy powers also destroyed the environment as though, I don't know. I just, I, it made me upset because I am not a scientist, but I didn't think the science made sense so i just don't even barely want to talk about it but um i wanted to come back to you with it andrew to talk about the talkiness because we did talk about that a little bit in the last episode we ended up talking about a bunch of other stuff so like this comic's doing an impression of claremont it very clearly is that what makes claremont's Stan approach to, well or stanley too but i mean you know <laughs> that that whole history is connected of course but what makes to you claremont's approach to narration when it's good you know, effective right. versus this being arguably a little bit less effective. So uh, people will violently disagree with me on this, but one of the things that I found in studying Claremont's approach to prose is that it has a hidden efficiency to it. Like there's a lot of it. So people assume that um, he's being inefficient. It's, it's kind of the opposite. He's able to mm -hmm. accomplish a great deal with every sentence that he's doing. He's just putting a lot of sentences in and thus you're getting a whole lot of emotional character development, mm -hmm. um, a little bit of travel literature, uh, um, a clear establishing of stakes um, and, and character dynamics and relationships. I, I don't think he's an inefficient writer. Ashford to me is still inefficient. I don't, I don't know where he went in his career, but a lot of the stuff he's just kind of throwing it out there in imitation of other stuff like the the scene where um rachel is repairing the electromagnetic matrix that you just talked about that is clearly riffing on gene and the mcron crystal but not 
really effectively like it just feels like you're you're throwing emotions in that haven't been established that are maybe incongruous with some of the things that the scene has set up so it, it feels like again and it's appropriate for the text because of mav's opening joke where they put in all this this computer terminology ashford does feel to me like a neural network trying to write claremont it's just that slapdash <laughs> He's tried all of this stuff. This seems Claremontian. Let's throw it in there kind of thing. And again, there's, in my eyes, again, biased, open to criticism on it. There's a grace to Claremont's writing, uh, a skill to it and a precision that I think gets overshadowed by its volume. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Andrew. I mean... A lot of the narration, too, speaks in Claremont to the depth of the writing in terms of he wouldn't just tell you specifically what's going on. It's like adding emotional depth to what's going on. And a lot of the subtext of Claremont often comes out in that narration, which is not just telling you the mechanics of how Rachel is repairing the ozone with science <laughs> that doesn't make sense. Like, I mean, that's like a little bit different because, I mean, you brought up that like that crystal scene and I'm like, that's so different. That's like not what this is at all i mean the narration of that is like how these like queer feminine like feminist biblical, bonds are yeah, like, yeah like, <laughs> I mean, it's like very different than like what we're having here yeah um in terms of okay i wanted to talk about the like rachel transforming momentarily into captain britain thing and yes please explain this to me yeah uh, I don't well know I <laughs> time wait yeah i mean we're gonna get this explicated a little bit more later but yeah so she and brian well, spoilers she and brian are gonna switch places maybe but um basically there's some kind of thing where brian is linked to her in the time stream and so she's been having like visions of him replacing her sort of almost like his body is replacing her body and so like that's sort of what's happening here but i was interested in it on a purely kind of visual level and on a you know subtextual reading level i mean we've talked about trans readings of rachel on the pod before and you know these are linked to her disappearance from uncanny x-men where she steps with i mean they're linked to a lot of things but i mean especially um linked to her disappearing with spiral into the body shop going away for a while and then she comes back in excalibur and whereas she had been a very kind of again putting this in air quotes again like masculine coded in some ways very tomboyish in her original portrayal she comes back as this much more glamorous much more feminized while still having that toughness uh, character in Excalibur. And so there's a really interesting narrative gap there that was supposed to be filled with the Rick Leonardi series. We we kind of have talked about that history before on the pod. But yeah, this moment was certainly a lot in terms of Rachel's reaction to it too and the, the visualization of it. You know, seeing her body become hyperbolically masculine and she has this reaction like, no, mm. I won't have it. I won't. Mm. I won't. And pushes it back. And I did find that a compelling scene not for the reasons the scene intended i'm sure but i i did just want to note it why did you find it compelling because i what i think is interesting about it to me is i think what they're going for i don't know that i agree with it but to me it's that she is intentionally denying this part yeah. of herself which is what they're going for right like she like up until now it's been implied that she doesn't know what's going on here i won't have it i won't i won't i won't implies that what is going on she is aware of it she is aware that she is counteracting it she is doing everything she can to not allow it to be so that's interesting i mean i don't know that i like it but i think it's interesting and i think that does wrap it. i don't think that 
Ashford's aware of the trans reading that you're referring to. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's I, still, think so. I do not think so. <laughs> but but it, but I do think it still wraps into that same argument. He is certainly making a statement about no, I will not have my bodily autonomy robbed yeah. from me for anybody, even mm-hmm. my friend. Right. Yeah. And I mean it also implies that she knows she's suppressing Brian or keeping yes. him lost in the time stream too, which again, that's like a bad thing for her to do, but it is an interesting character beat that I can be sympathetic to because, you know, she has had, her her whole character arc is defined by people stealing her bodily autonomy. So those challenges to her Mm -hmm. autonomy, that's always a big deal. If only this were ever explored ever, it's not going to be. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, like purely purely on the basis of, you know, the scene itself and what we have here, did you find any interest in this scene, Rachel? Or Rachel, Charlotte, pardon. <laughs> I'm very flattered. I just, I, I don't know. I think the the lack of immediate context and the fact that that arm is broader than her waist just had me sort of stumped, honestly. That it it seemed to be sort of communicating excess more than anything that I could sort of immediately pass. Okay. Yeah, I mean, again, the excess part of it. I guess was sort of what interested me visually just in the sense that again it's like this hyper masculine body sort of exploding out of her very exaggeratedly feminine body and sort of her mm. reaction to observing that I don't know I just did find interesting uh, again even if not for quite the way that the, that the scene sort of compels I mean you know I don't know yeah I find it curious I'll leave that, it there I mean because I think we all feel this way right and compare this to this has happened in this book already. This has mm-hmm. happened with Nigel mm-hmm. Frobisher several times, you know, literally at the in the early issues of this book. And we found it, and I don't think it's just because of the art style. I don't, I don't, I mean, maybe you could say, oh, we just like one artist better than the others, but I don't, I don't think it's that. I think that it was conceptually handled in a more interesting way when Nigel was fighting his am I me? Am I Courtney? Am oh, I yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Like, like, I yeah, think yeah. that was a, like, I think you can do this story. I think you can do something interesting with it. Like we're when they all gonna... merge together, right? Right, yeah. right. Uh, we're just not going to get that because it's, it, it's hinted at three times in three issues. And then it's just resolved in issue 75, I think, whatever, which, whichever number it is. Yeah. And then never mentioned again. And that's like weird. Anyway, we are going to come back to some of those readings, I think with a guest who I think wants to talk about it, but I just wanted to signpost it here. But yeah, yeah. definitely. I mean, with something like the Nigel thing, that gender story was intentional and uh, that's not the case here. I'm not arguing that at all. Yeah. Just that, you know, in the context of, of the fanon of Rachel, just it can be one of those little little context moments you can pull out. Um, let's do some final thoughts. Um, go around the horn, see stuff that we didn't talk about. We didn't talk about the Kurt teleporting thing, which I want to talk about, but that'll be my final thought. But if anybody else <laughs> wants to talk about it, they're free to. But I'll give everybody a chance to say their piece. So Mav, coming to you first. Final thoughts, stuff you didn't get a chance to talk about. Uh, I mean... Nothing that I that really sings to me this week. There's just, there's a lot of just little bits throughout this that you know I talked about the excessive amount of word balloons. There are so many. I I realize yeah. he's trying to call back to like um to like um what Claremont did unsuccessfully. To me, it feels a lot more like Stanley and not like good Stanley. It feels like the the way Stan phoned it in towards the end of his writing. There was a part point of his career where he was writing 20 books for Marvel at once, and you could tell which ones he cared about and which ones he didn't because he'd just throw words out there. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, and Stan, 
Stan talked about this like publicly. He was just like he and Jack Kirby were all of Marvel Comics at one point, and they're just like we just had to get stuff done. And this feels like you know like when 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 she's like suddenly her body goes limp, a cosmic puppet whose strings have been cut, no longer a flame in the heavens outshining the brightest of stars, no longer a celestial body. Rachel Summers is once again an earthly body caught in the deadly grip of gravity to fall to flame. No more. What the hell are you talking about? And it, <laughs> know, and it just and it just goes on and on and on throughout this book and that was so that was one of my thoughts my other thought was rory wears really cool underwear for just a guy in 90 in 1994 like he's basically <laughs> oh, i gotta go to it <laughs> yeah he's got like he's got boxer briefs on which were which were becoming were, were very much you know joining becoming a style at this point in the 90s that like men were wearing but he is first off he's the most ripped scientist ever you know so good for him you know like <laughs> so I'm, not, I'm not i'm not against that after a world where we had Alistair for a while you know Rory just you know oh. he does you know he, he has a good diet he does cardio he's probably doing some P90X and I, I I appreciate it you know you know you don't take you know you don't take days off from the gyms you don't skip leg day gains not pains so fine but then like he's just under his regular clothes just wearing you know spandex boxer briefs biker shorts as like his underwear and like that's a that's an interesting choice for like just because he doesn't know he's going to strip today. He's just a dude. That's just his regular look. I'm like, OK, all right, dude, I guess. Well, I mean, it just reminds me of that presence and absence again, though, right? Like you draw it as though it's a superhero uniform so that it's not underwear, which is like, on the one hand, it's highly sexual because it's very aestheticized. And on the other hand, like, oh, he's not like wearing underwear. It's like metal shorts or something because it's so shiny. Which would make sense if it were Kurt, but it's not. He's Rory. He's just a dude. Like, he's not He's not a superhero. He's just a guy who was showing up for his first day at work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, Andrew, final thoughts. Uh, just to riff on Mavs a little bit there. Um, Rory is given an introduction that um, is, is Beowulf. Um, the idea of <laughs> someone from another land on a mission of prominence who has to go through the water and shouldn't have survived it before arriving. And again, he's super ripped. And in order to help people out, that's Beowulf. Um, yeah. So I think there's a cool connection Ashford's at least going for there. Why? Why? Because because he's trying to make him the coolest scientist ever. I I, I know, but my, my my problem with it is either there's one of two things: either you're going to assume that people know that he's Ahab, in which case everything is gross and everybody looks stupid because they can't figure it out, or we're supposed to be surprised when the Ahab reveal comes because we're supposed to be stupid too, and yeah, we're supposed we to think be. he's just a science he's just a scientist like. And if you're just a guy, if you're just a dude showing up for work, why are you on this epic journey? Like, I started a new job this year. There was no epic narration. I just kind of w- went to my, yeah, that'd be great. But they didn't give me that. They just, like, they're like, here's your office. Um, you know, here's, here's your computer that's not, you know, you're, you're an English professor. So your computer's not great, but, you know, we'll give you a new one, I guess. Like, like that was how much I got, like, the bathroom's over there. That, that's like, that was like how, that's how much of a tour I got. There was no epic voice guy. What is this happening? You know, I don't know. Maybe biologists are cooler than, <laughs> than us. I don't know. I want to make pictures of each of us now doing regular daily things with excessive erotic <laughs> captions narrating our experiences I'm like this is planting a seed in my mind for everybody's Christmas gift um, <laughs> anyway, yeah I just 
I just wanted to mention the teleporting thing. I don't have a lot to say about it, but I did. I always find it interesting when we're exploring sort of mechanics of Kurt's powers. And I did find it interesting that he has this reaction where he goes into shock about that. And Kitty saves him, of course, but he's still like psychologically messed up about almost materializing inside of a wall. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that's interesting. I mean, it just, you know, happens for a moment and we kind of move on. But I did think that that was like a little bit of insight, like to have him have the psychological reaction to it. I did like that. That's a point in favor of of how that was. Because I mean, on the one hand, it's just done because, oh, that's a cool thing that we can do. But I did like that little grain of, of, of psychologicalness there. Can I add to that slightly? Because I, I, I forgot. Of I already did my final thoughts. But there was one thing that didn't, I didn't, I meant to make a note of when I read the book. And then I forgot until you just brought it up. So later on in the book, Kurt gets teleported. He overshoots and he teleports into the air. And then he does multiple teleports to get to the ground safely oh you can't do that yeah yeah can't establish that it it, it is it is the it is like the first thing that we established about kurt's powers in like his second appearance is that he cannot just teleport to the ground without going squish it's like specifically how his version of teleportation works yeah so it turns like my my vote in favor of it into a gripe because yeah it's not handled consistently and i mean I will reiterate a modern gripe of like, no one cares about these rules at all anymore. And I hate it because (laughs) having rules on his powers and having mechanics is really important to like having a sense of that character's physical locatedness in the world. And you can't just abandon it and make it magic. It's dumb. Mark Grunwald and Peter Sanderson wrote a very good encyclopedia (laughs) of every character as a writing exercise. So, you know, for editorial control, but they allowed it, you know, I read it because I was a nerd, but like, but like the, the handbook of Marvel universe makes it very, very clear how Kurt's powers work so that we can avoid editorial problems like this yeah (laughs) yeah but like again I still have a a point in favor of it having an emotional resonance like to have those limits because again it's sort of like in an action movie where you know especially superhero action movies where they dissolve into those like CGI messes toward the end and you just don't have any locatedness if you don't understand what the limits or rules about Kurt's teleportation is then you lose some of the identification with the character because some of the joy that I find in identifying with this character is thinking about his relationship to space thinking about how it would feel Mm -hmm. to be him thinking about how you would have the sense of what it feels like to teleport and if it's just magic with no consequences and you can do whatever and there are no rules then you lose that a little bit so Mm -hmm. that's my that's my point in favor of it being both consistent and thoughtful and yeah it's been a while since i've had that i like yeah because i like when they this book does a very good job of distinguishing the fact that kurt's powers work but i mean his teleportation powers work differently differently which is fascinating that's really interesting and that his power powers work differently than kitties too you know because they both have you know space and place powers but their powers are very different and i did like that in theory it was like cool to see the comic book exploring that a little bit um charlotte coming to you for 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 final final thoughts how would you like to sum up this comic book anything that you would like to mention here before we leave it behind oh wow um and this might might be too big a thing to to bring up but we we talked about it earlier i just find that there's that sequence where where Kurt is sort of doing a circus act to distract <laughs> Sienna and that 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 to me really is where the gender policing of it really sort of intensifies it starts out with Kurt saying ladies and gentlemen and in your case Sienna I use the term oh, loosely yeah. leaving it very uncertain as to which of the terms he believes uh, does and does not apply to her and then she quips back at him by saying you'll be dead as disco and like 
that that to me, apart from just being a very strange quip, <laughs> which indeed a lot of the quips in this in this book are, it's it's really telling that what she sort of accuses him of is looking disco, right? A cultural form that is sort of coded in very specific ways in terms of gender and sexuality and that she sort of tries to throw the policing back at him and that it doesn't really get resolved, but there's just this this sense that questions of correct gender performance are are really central to the sort of underlying conflict of of how power is set up in this comic. That scene did strike strike me as well, Charlotte, and I'm very happy that you mentioned it. And I almost feel like it brings us full circle back to the cover of <laughs> the comic. Yeah, Kurt and Sienna, and their different types of gendered monstrousness. But um, we've probably said enough about that for now. What must I do now? Kill them? I can tell you nothing. My days are ending. The gods of once are gone, forever. It's a time for men. It's your time. I need you now, more than ever. No. This is the moment that you must face at last, to be king alone. And you, old friend? Will I see you again? No. (laughs) There are other worlds. This one is done with me. So we will wrap things up there. Other than to say, Charlotte, a thousand times thank you for joining us once again. It's such a blast talking excess with you. Always one of my favorite topics, especially with someone who knows their stuff as you do. Before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners of where they can find you and what you get up to. So if you would like people to find you online, where can they find you? And is there any work or projects or anything else of yours related to you or just stuff that you like that you want to wreck? Go for it. The floor is yours. Oh, thank you. First of all, thank you so much. This was so much fun and and again as i said i i feel yeah uh, both uh, delighted and slightly horrified that that i'm considered someone who knows <laughs> something about this kind of art style uh but it really i i always learn so much uh listening to you guys discuss these these truly wild comics <laughs> uh i am on twitter at charlotte j fab <laughs> unintentionally self-aggrandizing version of my surname there um i'm really good at tweeting when 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 stuff is happening in usually in relation to my work as a comic scholar and really bad at tweeting the rest of the time but if you want to catch up with with what I'm doing, where I'm at, what I'm publishing, that's a good place to do it. Unfortunately, a lot of my public-facing scholarship is written in Danish, which rather limits the captive audience. But if, for whatever reason, that is a language that people read and or understand, um, I write and edit for the comics news site Nomani and have appeared on a couple of episodes now of the Danish podcast Supersnack, which is all about superheroes. And I guess the final thing is that the, the article that we've referenced a number of times on uh, Chuck Dixon's Nightwing run Precarious Lines is actually open access. It is. So uh, that is free to read for uh, everyone who Googles uh, that title and my name. It should be easy enough to find. It is, and it was, because I thought I had a copy of it and I reread it for the pod. So we will definitely put it in the show notes and tweet it out as well. Um, but yeah, thank you so much again, Charlotte. Thank you. 
Next, things stay excessive in Excalibur number 74, In the Name of Love, featuring the return of Megan, sort of, and a certain Mr. Named Sinister, plus lots more academic talk about excess with another guest who knows a lot about it. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out the fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our earlier episodes, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via Twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you Andrew and Mav for another blazing conversation. Thank you Charlotte for helping us map the issue's DNA. Thank you all for listening and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. Thanks so much everybody.